you will be saved if you have the same faith that Christ had, which was that you are completely and utterly obedient to the Word of God, up to and including your, um, your own death. Welcome back to Mind Matters. Today we are going to continue our discussion of Timothy Ashworth's book, Paul's Necessary Sin. We're going to be getting into some of the things that he talks about in part four of the book. There are four parts. So before doing that, I just want to give a summary of some of the insights that he gives in the first three parts of the book. We discussed some of them last week, but I want to kind of just uh, recap them and maybe get into a little bit more detail just to flesh those out so that we've got the kind of the proper foundation for the things that come out in part four of the book. So three of the main themes or concepts that come out in the first parts of the book are the opposition between law and faith, the nature of sin and why it is necessary in Ashworth's view and in Ashworth's interpretation of Paul's view, and the nature of an adulthood in spirit and contrasting that with childhood. And that comes out in the discussion of sin as well. So to look at the first one, the difference between law and faith for Ashworth, in Paul's letters, law, the, the law, so like the Torah or just any law, any religious law, is and faith, all, both of them are means of discerning the will of God, you know, God's intention. And they are means of coming into alignment with that. So these, the, the law and faith are two, what he, the, the two of, in the Greek word, stoicheia. So these are things that keep one in alignment. And so you, basically rules to follow or things that give direction. So the difference between law and faith is that law is a, an external list, essentially, of rules, things to follow, externally imposed rules. And faith, in contrast to that, is something that is experienced from within, like a direct connection. So it's almost like the, the law could be God's laws, but that are filtered through someone else and then given in an external, like, written form. So that will apply to any religious laws, not, not just Judaism, but the, the pagan, uh, pagan systems, too. Whereas faith, like I said, is that direct experience. So if the law comes through a prophet, for instance, that prophet has a direct connection, like we were talking about in, in our shows on Zoroastrianism, has that direct connection, and then can then, the, the prophet can then disperse that, that uh, wisdom to the masses. Whereas for Paul, that the same thing is going on, but each individual now has access, has that direct connection to the direction-giving something that comes from above. And that is faith. One of the, the features, or the main features of faith, are just that absolute trustworthiness and response, responsivity, that's responsiveness, to that inner word that is experienced. So the, when, when, the, when God's will or God's intentions or, or laws are experienced from within, then naturally an external source of those laws is no longer necessary. So that's why for Paul, the, the law, the, the, the Torah in this instance, is no longer necessary, because why would you need these external rules when you, when you have a direct experience of the truth and what, what is needed to, to guide your behavior? 
that's kind of that dichotomy in a just in a nutshell. He spends several chapters de- uh, devoted to it, and then re- returns to it in you know every chapter after that. So it kind of adds a bit more to the picture. So that is then directly related to the nature of sin. Sin is not just an action that you do that is wrong for Paul. Of course, those will be classified as sins, but he he has in mind something uh, much more comprehensive. Um, I'll read one short extract from the book to give an idea of what he means by that. So Ashworth quotes um, a passage from Romans, the letter of the Romans. Paul writes, For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift. So Ashworth comments, All are under the power of sin. Paul's focus here is not on individual actions, but on a fundamental condition. Paul considers that this fundamental state affects and informs all human actions so that even an apparent right action, a good action prescribed by the law and carried out dutifully, is still carried out by a person under the power of sin. So for Paul, the, like the, the state of sin is, like we talked about last week, that state of deadness, that state of mortality in which we can't do the right thing because this is a result of you know, Paul's interpretation of the fall is that we are in this state of slavery all the time, everywhere, for, for all time until, you know, until then, until now. And that was made possible by, you know, in, in Paul's mind, by this crucifixion and resurrection of, uh, of Christ. So that's how he sees it. And one of the ways that, one of the ways to think about this that we touched on last week is as this, um, this kind of analogy to childhood, where the child has this expansive kind of curiosity about the world and goes out seeking, but needs restrictions in order to prevent them from basically getting into too much danger. That restriction is then felt as this imposed, you know, um, like the, you know, the parent telling the teenager they can't do what they want to do. And that, that, that in itself, while protecting the child, also fuels this rebelliousness, which, um, which then, um, well, which, is part of why Paul calls this the necessary sin. Because in order to gain the understanding of the parent, the child has to go through this stage. A child who just listens to everything the parent says and takes it in externally doesn't have the inner experience of why certain things are wrong or, or not safe to do. So you have to burn yourself before realizing why it is that you have to that you should avoid fire. If you can imagine a child who just never experiences like the pain of touching something burning something hot then there's uh, there's something lacking in their experience they they've they haven't learned that lesson so for paul it's it's sin is kind of a uh it's almost like touching the fire that everyone humanity as a whole had to touch the fire collectively and figuratively in order to learn about things to then to then learn that lesson and come to a higher understanding of things basically you have to know what sin is by experiencing it for yourself in order to know that it is sin um, you have to know what's wrong you have to you have to do what's wrong in order to actually know what's wrong and that has been the collective state of humanity in Paul's mind you know for all time up until his time is um, yeah that state of collective childhood of of rebelliousness rebellion and in 
in practical terms for for everyone what that means is that we are st we are still in that s in that state that condition that all of humanity shares where there's something lacking we're missing that connection that we originally had and that's the connection that he um, that he sees in Genesis that original kind of um, direct connection between humanity and the divine and that has been severed we've become so identified with our individual physicality and our our separate um, our separate minds or the illusion of those things that we lose t we lose that connection we lose that connection both with the higher reality and with each other so that leads to um, like I called it last week enmity and isolation and Paul is presenting this inner transformation that will reestablish the connection with other people and get rid of that strife and that division so that people can actually unify. So it's basically taking a, this multiplicity of things, of people, and unifying them again into one corporate body, mm -hmm. what he calls the body of Christ. So that's an important part of, of Paul's thought is that um, reality is experienced now in a new sense, a corporate sense, um, corporate in the sense of part of a body. So um, basically a real community, a community of, of like-minded individuals and like-minded in the most literal sense possible, where for Paul, they actually do sh share in the same mind. So through them all having this bit of spirit that is inside them, they all share the mind of Christ and therefore all share each other's minds. So there's this kind of like almost um, um, like spooky action at a distance thing where they're all sharing in something, even though they're still in their separate bodies. That's kind of, um, kind of an, uh, kind of a, I hope that's a good enough um, summary of the, the nature of sin in this book. And that ties into now the nature of adulthood, because for Paul, humanity has been in this collective state of childhood. And now with this kind of first gift of the spirit, you have some people kind of getting things. They've got this bit of a, of a connection established. But even then, for Paul, like the, the early Christians, the people he's in, in contact with are still children in Christ. So now they're, they're still not there yet. There's still a process they have to go through. If you look at the actual adults, it would be um, Paul and his fellow apostles. So it's like for Paul and the apostles, they've got their, their inner channel to the, to the divine kind of like wide open. And uh, t to the point where they themselves have been totally transformed and um, and are kind of totally driven um, driven to their aim. They've got their they know what they're going to, they know what they're here to do and they're actually doing it. So there's nothing that kind of stands in their way from an internal perspective. But for the children in Christ, so the basically is you know the the, the people the members of his churches they are still um, still kind of struggling and battling with the flesh. So they're still, they're still in a state of, um, well, of having to struggle, whereas for the, uh, the adults, in, in Paul's terminology, the adults are kind of past that struggle, and it's their role to now actually guide you know, the children through this process. So that's kind of the, uh, those are the three main ideas that are in those first parts of the book. And then it's the fourth, the fourth part of the book that kind of gets, in my mind, on a, to a more kind of practical level. Because one of the things also that comes out in those first sections is the nature of prophecy as this kind of direct connection and um, faith in the living word. So faith in this, in this um, direction giving something that, uh, that guides, you know, guides behavior and guides your thought and guides your actions. 
And that prophecy um, is, that prophecy then plays a role in, um, in the church itself, like in the community itself. So that's kind of what the, um, what these last chapters get into. They get into two main, two main ideas. One is like the actual, the actual meaning of the crucifixion, why it was important for Paul and what it actually meant for him, and then how that played out in the actual practical realities of, you know, interacting with other people and what, what they actually did, what the, like what the apostles' role was for interacting with, um, with these, you know, with people, with these Christians, and then kind of initiating them into this transformation process that Paul himself had experienced. So that's kind of just a summary of, of uh, what, th- what these chapters actually get into. Yeah. Well, the ideas that he puts forth is um, the forgiveness of sin or, or embracing the seed of forgiveness, which is uh, reflected in a word called hilasterion, which I'm probably not pronouncing correctly. And the idea is that individuals in atoning for or becoming aware of how they have sinned, how they have done wrong, is a crucial part in the individual's experience in actually communicating with God. So one of the way that one of the ways that this comes about is with the apostle, in this case Paul or or his colleagues, actually directly addressing those wrongs with the people that he is or has under his tutelage, the people that he's been writing letters to, the people that he has befriended. And it's kind of like direct feedback in the way that you might expect to see from uh, Sam Now's book, uh, Inside the Criminal Mind, uh, where there is someone who has a very deep uh, character and sense of right and wrong and has this moral attitude or strength that enables him or her to communicate to the person listening what those things are that that person has done which effectively keeps them separated from God and from other people and identified with their own individual selfishness, selfishness and, and urgings for self-gratification and uh, isolation from everyone else. So there was that element of it as well. And it's interesting to think that Paul is beseeching his people, he's encouraging his listeners to form that direct connection to God through faith so that they can hear the correct direction or the truth that would help to guide them in their everyday thinking and doing and behavior. At the same time, uh, not unlike the laws, but perhaps a little different in the way that uh, Paul describes it, is also this external feedback mechanism where the person has enough trust in the apostle and those leading this new faith to accept the, the words, the criticisms, the 
observations that have been made about their behavior in an effort to induce a sense of atonement, to induce a sense of remorse and conscience about those things that, that keep them separated from everyone. So that was essential, an essential uh, part in all of this that uh, I thought was pretty interesting and profound. And um, given the fact that it's not so different from what people in a family might do who are insightful and, and have wisdom and just want the best for the other person and pointing out a person's flaws. But it does require a, a high level of trust and intimacy in some ways. And, um, and yet... Paul was advocating for this feedback mechanism in the context of coming closer to God. Yeah, just to, just to touch a little bit on the idea of, of faith that, that Paul had that was, um, that was something just brand new for Paul. That was, it was an experience that he had, the liberating experience on the road to Damascus. And this, this new faith that came that because of the death of Christ that was now available to everybody to, to be shared and to instruct them in their, you know, their daily lives. And that, you know, now that, you know, the, now that you have this new faith, you can rid yourself of the law basically because the law was just a child minder, but now you actually have God, you know, the spirit of God telling you what to do. But Ashworth goes into like what kind of faith that, um, Paul was talking about and it's it's a very interesting passage where he he goes line by line through all the times that Paul is referring to faith in Christ and how it could just as easily be translated to the faith of Christ that it's not that you'll be saved by faith in Christ and the story of the gospel and what Christ did and that you have faith in that but rather that you will be saved if you have the same faith that Christ had which was that you are completely and utterly obedient to the word of God up to and including your, um, your own death. But, you know, that your own life, you would sacrifice your own life um, for the word of God to do what God told you to do. Or that, that is just such a bold way of viewing reality that it is dist a distinct split between, you know, the life of a quote-unquote sinner and the life of, you know, someone who has this kind of salvation is that this person who has this salvation is now um, free from the constraints and the restraints of the material needs of the flesh. And what they do instead is that they, their life is, a, is of a service to something much higher and that they don't, you know, they're not see, being seen or judged by the world um, or letting that influence them in the same way. Now to the world, they're just fools, but they have, no, they have such little regard for, you know, this fleshly body that we have that it's just a matter of time before you're off into the other unknown realms of spirit, you know, to pursue the new creation and that this life is is just um it's not as important as you know the the pre uh pre faith mindset mm -hmm. yeah oh there are a few things i wanted to say in response to that one is the nature of this inner you know like the inner voice so basically you gave the example of um, having the faith of christ such that um that total obedience to the word of god just one 
kind of statement on that, hearing that, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, how is that any different than experiencing the word of God through the law, right? Through, through reading any religious text. And I think what Ashworth and Trolls Ingberg Peterson would say is that there's a totally different experiential dimension to it. Because there's a, you can feel it in yourself when there's, when you have a rule that you're supposed to follow, which you don't understand for yourself, and that you just, you just know is a rule you have to follow. Like it might be some tax law, you know, tax rule when you're doing your taxes. Oh, well, I know I have to do it, but, but why do I have to do this? It's, it's so dumb. And, you know, and you might even just fudge your numbers on your tax return in order to, to get around it. But there's nothing inside you that says, oh, well, this is really the, the perfect law, the perfect, like, tax regulation that, oh, you know, I just feel it inside me, so I'm going to go with it, you know, because it just feels right. Well, no one probably feels that with taxes at all, but for the for the inner, like, living word, it's, it's something that not only, there's an external and an internal dimension to it that Ashworth kind of highlights, is that it, is it, it is experienced as coming from some other realm, right, from somewhere else. But it is also internal in the sense that it is totally internalized. It is you feel it as your as your own too. So it's 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 more like two individuals being of the same mind. You know, sharing an opinion, sharing a a, a value or a, a thought on something where they're they 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 just they have that in common. So it's basically that's the na- <clears throat> that's the nature of this reconciliation between humanity and God is them coming into alignment. So. You're as much. Um, you feel that that guidance as much as your own as it is from elsewhere. So it's not like you are doing your taxes because you have to do them, but because on the inside you know that that is the the perfectly right thing to do. Again, taxes is a totally uh, dumb example because it's a. Uh, it, well, it's it's kind of on the level of that that religious law. Like no one no one experiences that because it's such a mundane, like fleshly thing. But the the principles there, where you, you actually it, the, the the inner living word is experienced as as your own, as something higher than yourself, and as your own at the same time. Um, I also wanted to get back to the the things that you brought up, Ilan, about the. Um, the kind of the nature of this process and what actually what, what actually is being said in these encounters that Paul was having with people. So I want to read some things from Ashworth. This is on the nature of what he calls the ministry of reconciliation. So what exactly is that? What is what is being reconciled? What is the nature of this ministry? So first he quotes a bit from Corinthians from second the second letter to the Corinthians where Paul says um, indeed, we live in the flesh, but we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons are our war. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So here he's talking about this kind of spiritual warfare, and he's saying it's not, no, it's not earthly warfare, it's not fleshly warfare. We're not taking our swords and going to battle. We're actually battling thoughts. We're battling arguments. We're, bat- we're, we're battling um, proud obstacles that come up in someone. So Ashworth comments um, about this, 
the, this nat the nature of this ministry is not only um, of peacemaking in the sense of kind of liberating from liberating from sin because that is experienced as a, a liberation as as something peaceful you're now in harmony with the, with the people around you but it's also there is an element of warfare to it there's an an element of uh, of struggle to it and of, mm -hmm. of discomfort and even of suffering so that's what he kind of um, that's what he gets into so he calls it um, Paul exercising the defi the divine power to oppose any fleshly human assertion. So that human assertion comes back to the, the nature of sin, the state that we're in, this constant uh, identification with the self, this um, this inherent and almost inescapable selfishness and, uh, and self-centeredness. And the the role of the apostles is to oppose that. So what they're actually doing on a practical level is opposing that in each individual case, in each individual moment, is to identify it and then expose it for what it is. So the next, the, the next section is called Exposing What is Wrong. And um, he quotes from various letters and just, he comes up with a, the, the, a few words that Paul uses in this context. So the kind of words he uses for this kind of um, this kind of ministry are being called to account, um, a close examination, um, the open statement of the truth, and as he and as Ashworth Ashworth kind of summarizes all of this, it is to expose the wrongness of something or someone. So that's what all of these things have in common: is that it's not this peaceful, lovey-dovey you know, feel-good approach to things, mm -hmm. this is actually um, these serious people, these apostles, with the authority, you know, within themselves to challenge that self-assertion in others, which, if you've ever experienced it <coughs> in, a, <coughs> in a serious setting and not just blowing up at someone, if you've actually experienced it, it's not comfortable at all to be, to have that, that image of yourself, that vision of yourself given to you. Well, this is what you're actually like. It's a little bit like a, like a death, right? It's uh, it can be viscerally, uh, to say that it's, that it's an uncomfortable thing might be understating, uh, the, the experience quite a bit. Uh, but that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about dying to, to become alive, uh, dying to the old self-identified, selfish, individualistic, proud self to embrace something that is much larger. And I think he, what he's also getting at is the possibility of internalizing this process for oneself. Mm -hmm. Because there are portions in Ashworth's book where he quotes Paul, and I think you might have mentioned this in last week's show, Harrison, how he, Paul would much rather, when he's visiting his acolytes, just have a nice time and sit down for dinner and, and chat and do whatever it is that they would normally do. He would rather not have to go through the process of explaining how wrongheaded and, uh, and just wrong mm -hmm. his acolyte's behavior has become. And on that point, I wanted to read a passage called the darkened mind, which does speak to some of this. It, it speaks to, humanity's state of being and here it goes in paul's account of the fall 
the loss of the appropriate response to God, which Paul says is to honor and give thanks to God, worship and serve God, is tied together with a coarsening of human consciousness. They become futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened, and a descent into idolatry. The implication of this is important for understanding Paul. The assertion of futile human thinking is tightly linked with the loss of the ability to perceive the invisible things of God. The futile thinking and darkened mind is bound up with a situation in which God is not glorified and thanked and, as a further consequence, is no longer known. Once, according to Paul, the perception of the invisible things of God is lost, all that can be perceived is that which is created. The fall, according to Paul, is a change of perception, a loss of the perception of the divine connected with the assertion of futile human thought and a darkening of the heart. The consequence of this is that humankind can only see clearly the physical and comes to be identified with the physical stuff of human existence. This is the lie. Having been created to be the image of the creator in the world of what is created, doing the creative work of the creator, humankind ends up blind to the invisible things of God and identifying existence with what is created, physical, visible, and mortal. And, very importantly, the invisible things of God includes that image of God in humankind itself. Ashworth goes on to discuss exchanging the truth of God for the lie. To further demonstrate the consistency and importance of Paul's understanding of the plight of humankind presented in this early section of the letter to the Romans, several points can be drawn from 2 Corinthians 3.5, an important passage which will be returned to. Seeing God's glory. In the first section, Paul is comparing the old law of Moses with the new covenant of the Spirit. Central to his argument is a discussion of the glory that lasts completely overwhelming the fading glory which was present into the giving of the law. Well, just to get back to a moment to this darkened mind idea, there were so many implications that it had in reading it uh, so many things that we've been discussing here on the show that it brought up for me in reflecting upon it, one of which was intelligent design and our inability because of this veil of, of physicality that we're subject to of not seeing how certain things could only have been created, for lack of a better word, by a higher intelligence or something closer to God than, than we are. So there's this sense that we have been trained and taught and in, in, encumbered by a perception or a veil to not see those things all around us that are gifts, that are creations that we couldn't possibly be responsible for. And instead, all of those things have been replaced by technology, by uh, various ephemeral entertainments, by 
the spectacle by things that have grabbed our attention that are man-made and that seem by some almost nefarious design to keep us from looking and acknowledging and recognizing those things that are spiritualized matter, that are uh, things that are or couldn't have been created by man. Yeah, the, the, the invisible things are important. <laughs> and I think, yeah, that, I thought about that too, about how one of the invisible things is seeing the actual creativity in the in the, the universe and that it does come from above. We only, um, if you look at mainstream culture, we only see our own creativity. We, well, we constantly see the creativity inherent in nature. We just don't see it for what it is. There's like this, this almost, our, our thoughts, our, our perceptions almost get deviated or directed out of coming to just the logical conclusion of what we see. We come up with all of these elaborate explanations for what is a pretty simple idea that um, getting back to our shows on genetics, for instance, that information is a product of intelligence. We, we are so, so blinded to just the nature of creativity that mainstream culture can't even acknowledge that, can't see it, can't understand it, when, and, and come up with these strange, arcane, like, eso, not esoteric, but baroque, <laughs> like, contractions of the mind in order to try to explain it in some mechanical way, but that's just impossible. It doesn't, it, the explanations don't end up working. And for Paul, some of these other invisible things are these, are these divine qualities like, like righteousness, whatever that means, and like glory, whatever that means, and uh, faithfulness, whatever that means. Because these are, these are new things like Corey was saying this faithfulness, this faith is something that was brand new for Paul, you know, something that he experienced as this, this novelty, this, this new way of being, this new way of experiencing and living. So these are all things that have been cut off in that disconnection that is, that has taken part to taken place as a result of the fall. And that fall is just like Adam is a representation, a representation of everyone, the fall is a is uh, like a, a process or a, a feature of everyone too. We are we are all these fallen beings that have had their connection to to the higher reality cut off, and who are now blind to things, and we're primarily blind to ourselves. That's one of the the essential things because we can't access the the higher things if we don't have knowledge about ourselves and the ability to see ourselves. So that's what the, that's the in, the integral part of this transformation process that that gets back to what we were saying about the actual nature of this ministry. Um, there's a good passage in the Gospel of John that Ashworth quotes. Just uh, the reason the only re reason he brings it up is because um, whoever wrote the Gospel of John used the word used a word that isn't used very often in Paul, so um, just as a way of showing that here's here's another context in which that word is used in the in the New Testament and it's used in basically the same manner. So this is the this is that passage for everyone for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So there is this part of ourselves what well, this passage is getting at there's this part of ourselves that does not want to be exposed, doesn't want its true motivations and its true nature to actually be exposed to 
yourself, to oneself, and to everyone else. Mm-hmm. We want to keep that hidden. We don't want we don't want to be exposed. We don't want to have our weaknesses projected. We don't want to accept our weaknesses to ourselves. That's why we come up with these overinflated visions of ourselves and our abilities. And we don't want other people to think that about us. We want them to think we're these great, decent, perfect human beings when we're not. Mm-hmm. So there's this there's this fear on a certain level, this fear of being exposed. And so Ashworth comments on this passage. He says, <clears throat> um, well, first he adapts the translation because that was the RSV translation. <clears throat> so he brings in his um, um, he brings in his translation of that word to to adapt that statement to this. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest the wrongness of his deeds should be exposed. That's the real that's the real core meaning of that word. Lest the wrongness of his deeds should be exposed. So Ashworth Ashworth now comments. An essential part of the meaning proposed is is that it is the nature of something as wrong that is exposed to an individual. That exposure leads to a judgment that the thing, a deed or an idea, for example, not previously seen as wrong, is so and is, by implication, seen by that individual to be need, in need of change. So basically, we, the nature of this change in self-perception as a result of this transformation is that the old features of ourselves are now seen to be in need of change. So you, you see things in a new context. You say, oh, that actually is wrong. I didn't realize the, you know, the implications of my actions there. I didn't realize how I was behaving mm-hmm. or what I was thinking or what I was doing or what I was feeling or how I was, how I was reacting. That actually needs to change if I want to, in simple terms, become a better person. So Ashworth goes on and... In, uh, in commenting on a passage in first letter to the Corinthians, he says, um, The prophetic word of God exposes, scrutinizes, and discloses the secret wrong of the individual. In other words, reveals the personal state of sin. Well, I'll read the passage, actually, because it's important. So, he's saying, But if all prophesy, prophecy, this is in, um, basically, in a church community. So, if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, his wrongness is exposed by all. He is scrutinized by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So that here's Paul kind of giving a, a pretty rosy picture of the <laughs> of exposing the wrongness of someone. Imagine that, right? So you're, you've got a friend that says, oh, hey, you know, come over to my house. We're having a, a church group meeting, right? So you come over and everyone's just like, here's all the things wrong with you. You're like this and this close scrutiny of your, your character and your behavior. And, and, you're, and you just, wow, the, the, the spirit of God is among these people, right? doesn't really sound like uh, that plausible of a, of a scenario, does it? But... Um, so, I'll continue on with uh, Ashville's or Ashworth's um, description of this, his commentary. So, as a con- as a uh, so, this reveals the personal state of sin of the unbeliever or the outsider. So, as a consequence of this extraordinary activity of the community, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and the unbeliever is convinced that it is not by any human ability that the truth about himself is revealed, but that it is God who is speaking through the word of prophecy. And, announce, and hence he declares that God is really 
um, living, existing among you. In this unique passage, Paul is describing the effect of a community led by the Spirit, actively, God, actively guided by the prophetic word of God upon unbelievers, that is, those on the outside. Something previously hidden and painful for the individual to see is revealed as an essential part of the experience of liberation. That old life is now newly revealed as a form of slavery or death. What Paul speaks of is liberation from a fundamental state of sin that stays unexposed until it is revealed in the process of liberation. Only its consequences in sins, in small or great acts of wrongdoing, are seen. It is this that explains why he can be both strongly positive and negative about the law. Within the old life, it is an extraordinary blessing, providing guidance from God in a state of blindness. Once blindness is revealed in the coming of the new life, the law is no longer necessary. Indeed, it is a temptation to pull back from the demands of the adult life of faith. So, he, in other places, he comments on that, that passage and how you have this... Be, well, if you think about the possible responses, this actually is, is well exemplified in the Gospel of Mark in the parable of the sower. Because you have the, you know, the sower sowing seeds on different types of ground, on rocky ground, on, on ground with thistles growing up in it, and on good ground. And so the seed gets planted, but depending on the different surfaces and the different like things in which the seed is planted, you'll get a different response. So if someone hears the truth about themselves spoken to them, if they have good earth, you know, if they are good earth, that seed will be planted and they'll be receptive to it. They, they will see, you know, oh, my eyes have been opened. They'll see, oh, I actually am like that. I see that, right? And if it's thrown on rocky ground, like uh, the like the as exemplified by the disciples in uh, in the Gospel of Mark, they'll they'll say, "Oh yeah, I see it, I see it." And then when the first um, when the first conflict comes about, the first situation in which they actually have to prove themselves, then they fall away and they deny what they'd previously seen. But the the ground the 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 seed that is thrown on. What was it? Uh, I can't remember what the name of the ground is, but basically on the on the road, essentially where there's no soil, as Mark, whoever wrote Mark, puts it, that's when the birds snatch up the seeds right away. They don't even have time to. The seed has no time to be planted, and the inter interpretation that Jesus gives in that parable is that that is Satan snatching away the seed. So that would be the individual that. Let's imagine this outsider going to this community and and having that. Um, that experience of having themselves their, and all their flaws exposed to themselves and to others, that would be the person that immediately denies it. Says, well, that's not me. I'm not like that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not disagreeable. <laughs> right? right. You know, uh, you know, I don't raise my voice when people tell me things about myself, right? As they're raising their voice, everyone's mm -hmm. experienced something like that, right? Where you give someone feedback and they immediately manifest that exact feature that you've just pointed out to them while denying it mm -hmm. it's uh it's pretty common so that that is kind of how the the process plays out in practice one of the implications of this is that this process even in the good even in the good earth scenario the person who's receptive is it it does lead to suffering it is it, it is not pleasant it's never pleasant to 
to see oneself, essentially. And so um, one of the ways Ashworth puts it is that basically suffering is, um, it's the nature of suffering when, or suffering is the nature of actually hearing the word of God, this prophetic living word, and it's, the, it's that response to truth, you know, via conscience. That is the, the experience of it. That's why, for Gurdjieff, for instance, why remorse of conscience was such an important concept, right. mm-hmm. is because it is when you see yourself and when you see the 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 impact and the influence that your actions have had primarily on other people. Ideally, that will um, provoke and and bring up a little remorse of conscience, and that is it is a form of suffering. So this gets to. Um, well, one other thing on the nature of it, I, I mentioned it just in passing previously, is on the nature of faith, what faith means for um, for people in that situation. We've already talked about the basically the receptivity and obedience to that thing that gives guidance, you know, that living word, as, as Paul and Ashworth put it. But one of its features is that it's having that receptivity and obedience in each moment, and for each individual. So it, it's almost, basically, I think that's one way of saying that one of the reasons that the law is not, the or religious laws are not the best thing, um, not the best option available, is that they're kind of one-size-fits-all formulas, right? In all situations, here's the, here's the rule. But the... <laughs> Well, let me say something okay. about that, if I could, Harrison, because um, I just want to take a step back for a moment and discuss what Ashworth brings up regarding the law and Moses and the Ten Commandments and the transmission of that, because there was a comparison made between Moses and his reception of the law and Mount Sinai and, and bringing the tablets and, and having to wear this veil over his head because his face was so glowing and it was so bright because of his the, the glory that he had internalized in having this ex- direct experience of God, right? And of of all the people that Moses was speaking to who would say, no, don't lift the veil. You know, we can't, it's, it's too bright in here. It, you know, we, we'll, we'll read the commandments you brought down on those written physical tablets maybe, but please keep the veil on where in distinction with this is this uh, experience of Paul, right? Where he is, where he has also received a message from God or inspired by something only it's a living thing within him and something that he seeks to unveil and communicate and hopefully inspire in other people who are reading his message, uh, which is God's message. So there's this uh, transmission of, of information about what the living spirit is, of what living closer to God is in one's direct experience of another, uh, of another individual without being blinded by the proverbial light right? Because, because Paul was, this was interpersonal communication. This was Paul writing letters. This was Paul visiting people and speaking before congregations and, and making everything as accessible as possible to everybody, Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, 
this was the the spirit of something and not the literal uh, 50 kilo tablet that that you were going to get hit over the head with by Moses uh, which was preferable to seeing this this glowing face that would totally knock you off your feet and um, I thought that was a very interesting comparison and uh, and also that you know getting back to this idea of giving feedback to others and possibly inducing a remorse of of uh, conscience and consciousness within an individual that that this was also a uh, this was also something that was a tailor-made um, experience and communication between uh, the apostles and and the individuals or or between people who believed in the living spirit that this wasn't a as you put it before a one size fits all um, way of addressing wrongdoing and one's behavior. So this is a this is a, a reformation. This is an innovation, I think, mm-hmm. that that comes with Paul's letters and and the ideas that he was trying to convey to people. Mm-hmm. The word that I was trying to think of was heuristic, right? So you've got these one one size fits all rules. But at best, they're going to be a very accurate heuristic. There are going to be situations where it's not clear what the correct response is. For instance, um, I, I often think about what Jordan Peterson says about telling the truth. You know, always tell the truth. And I remember someone asked him a question once, something like, well, what about if you're in nazi germany or something or some occupied territory and you're hiding jews in your basement and the nazis come to your door and ask you if you're hiding anyone well what do you do you know isn't lying the right thing to do in that situation and his response was well if you're in that situation things were so far gone you and people collectively had made so many mistakes prior to that that there's no good good answer right you have to lie but even that is a it's an it's just a necessary evil it's but he he couldn't bring himself to say that lying was actually a good thing in that situation mm-hmm. i think that if you just look at that situation lying is the good thing in that situation mm-hmm. yeah it's it's kind of a necessary evil but you can't but it it still shows the um the the truth of the the rule that rules aren't universally applicable there are situations where you will have to lie where the, it is the right thing to lie if, if that person comes to your, if, you know, some Nazi comes to your door and asks you, asks you if you're hiding people, right. and if saying yes means that they're going to kill you and your and the people you're hiding, you lie. You know, you put on a... Well, yeah, it's just, it gets back to what Helan had brought up in the last show about the, you know, the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And this is exactly what we're talking about here is that the the prime difference for these communities was um for paul was being able to hear the spirit and you understand to know what's right and wrong in any given situation because you are aware of it because you have a connection um and you know that was his job as the apostle was to uh increase that connection for the children of christ until that they could become adults in christ and would be able to discern those kinds of things for themselves without Mm -hmm having to worry about, you know, am I circumcised or uncircumcised or whatever, all of these 
little meager laws that everyone had that are, you know, like you were saying, that are heuristics. Um, and then a lot of them are just horrible, you know, just yeah. garbage made up by whatever priestly classes for whatever reasons. Mm-hmm. And some of, you know, but some of them actually like legitimate and, you know, important universally, you know, we, we could say that these were good moral law, like don't kill, you mm-hmm. know, <clears throat> but um, that it was the spirit of the law that, the spirit of of what is invisible that's behind the law that gives it the power that it that it should have mm-hmm. that was important right so the way i picture it in my mind when i'm seeing this when i'm kind of visualizing or imagining what it must be is um well and it's actually something i have experience of myself is you have this group of individuals these this group of people and each person is is an individual they have their own personality characteristics, their own history. And to have them, let's say, share something, the response to that will have to be individually tailored to that person. That's just the way it works in practice. You, you can't have a, a one-size-fits-all thing where you just, you just give your stock response in a certain situation to everyone. It has to be individual and it has to be in that moment. So that's where that... Um, where that nature, that nature, that feature of faith that I mentioned earlier is that receptivity and, and obedience in each moment is that you have to be receptive in that moment, and it's it, it is a product of experience and and of that inner transformation. A great exemplar of that in the more modern day is Gurdjieff, who we talked about for two shows. Yes, how he would he would give individual guidance because he was so perceptive he had such a great knowledge of human psychology and kind of human personality types that he he could size up a person in you know a split second upon meeting them he knew where where what their buttons were what their features were he could probably tell you know i'm exaggerating but tell them their entire life story just upon meeting them that's kind of the the level of insight that he had about people and that in in these early christian terms would be he had that connection he had that um, that ability to, in any given moment, in, and for any in individual to see what the the right answer for them, where they are, um, would be, because it's not only that different people require different answers, because that's kind of just obvious. It's that each person at every stage of their own development requires a different answer. You can tell you can tell a person one thing at one point in their life and their development that you couldn't tell them at another stage because it's again it comes down to that parable of the sower you'll just be sowing a seed on might be rocky or thorny ground what you need what you need to have a this awareness this ability to see the unseen is essentially what it is this would be another one of those invisible things of god that to to be able to see is the, the nature like the the true hidden nature of of every created thing to be able to have that understanding of that in every moment to then be able to give the proper seed for that yes. ground so one of the things that uh Gurdjieff says is um, love without knowledge is demonic and like i'm glad we're discussing such a nuanced approach to helping another or giving feedback because really if if that individual and their psychology and your own knowledge of psychology and right and wrong and morals and character isn't working together, isn't being synthesized to, to help the other person, then 
a person can end up doing something quite damaging in giving feedback or mm -hmm. correcting the wrongs. Uh, it might even further push a person in the direction of being doing wrong and, and living in the lie. So, I mean, we could read what Paul has to say here and certainly take it in and, and see how it can become a, a good, robust feedback mechanism for helping people along a path. And at the same time, there's a great deal of responsibility and, uh, <clears throat> and challenge that's inherent in, in such a, a dynamic. And so I'm glad we're saying all this because none of this is to be said lightly. And there's a lot of thought and, and consideration that goes into being, for lack of a better term, you know, a, a voice, an extension, a, an ambassador, a, uh, a, a kind of embodiment for, for God or the living spirit. Um, if that's what one aspires to in, in looking at some of this knowledge, if, if that's what one hopes for in some way, in some way that includes quite a lot of uh, humility and, and even to have humility about how little humility you have, uh, but to, to really think through some of these things. And this is a journey. This isn't a, this isn't something that we can read about, I don't think, and, and come to be self-satisfied about. This is an ongoing process of assimilating all of this stuff. Because I'm reading all this and I'm thinking, well, yeah, I get that and I get that. And you have to wonder how much of it is uh, merely intellectual and superficial and dot connecting from an external point of view. And how much of it is, in, is actually being or fueling this inner connection, if such a thing is possible, a direct connection. And what I really like about Ashworth and his examination of this is, because I, I was very curious about how he would end all this, and he ends it by asking a few questions of his own. You know, he's saying, who is this person like Paul who's going who's gonna to take us into the future? Because that's what all of this is about. It's about a real time in humanity's future when we can more or less shed the lie collectively and come to become a greater, greater than ourselves in this connection to God and the spiritual. So I really appreciated that about Ashworth and how he ends the book. I forget the specific questions that he that he puts forth, but it was pretty much along the lines of... Well, I'll read it. Go for it. So, last paragraph of the book... Let me just double-check. Yep. ...is, through, in, uh, through individuals in the early church, that powerful and effective ministry of reconciliation changed the world irrevocably. 2,000 years later, that extraordinary explosion of the Spirit still impacts upon us today. Still raising the question... How do we come to that place of transformative self-sacrifice now? And what are we waiting for that will change the situation where the transformation of a few inspirational individuals and the glimpses of transformation of the many becomes the irrevocable and effective transformation of all humankind expected by Paul? 
So those are kind of some big questions. That's one of the, it's an interesting thing about the letters of Paul that, I mean, you can read them for years and they have been read for centuries without really getting into these few ideas that are actually really present at the forefront, but that have just kind of, for the most part, gotten completely lost in the mix of all these years of theological and and exegetical analysis and and speculation that that once it once it's pointed out you 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 kind of look at it and say oh wow so that's what was going on i can i can see that now but then you're still left without a practical kind of how to manual right mm-hmm. you don't have it's it's not like after reading these reading this book or reading paul's letters it's you you have all the answers and can say oh now i can just put in the, this into practice and i'm set there's still stages that are left unsaid that basically you need uh, you need a, a teacher for, kind of like what Ashworth is hinting at. Well, who are going to be these inspirational individuals? So um, that's kind of what what uh, what we kind of try to do on this show by looking at all these different streams of thought from all over the place that kind of say the same thing in different ways and that maybe hopefully will create kind of a and uh, an in or you know that initial connection that initial draw to 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 let people to bring people to something in one of those traditions to hopefully find something because you know for instance with Gurdjieff there you know you can you can read Gurdjieff and there's a lot of there's a lot more spelled out in Gurdjieff than there is in the letters of Paul it's on a more a, a lot more of a practical level of well here are things to try here are things to do here are things to actually kind of kickstart this process so um yeah so i hope that i hope that people might be kind of inspired to look into this more check out ashworth's book and uh and kind of go further we didn't get to the ideas of the crucifixion and the actual death which is kind of central to all of this so i think we'll save that for another show we can focus on the nature of suffering and the crucifixion and how that ties in with everything so until then, you have that to look forward to, death and suffering. Um, we'll get that. We'll get to that next week. We'll we'll all, we'll all have experience of death and suffering next week as we try to get to the bottom of this. So thanks everyone. Take care.